You're listening to the Detroit is Different Podcast Network. Project Greenlight was introduced in 2016 as an initiative in community policing, a supposed public-private partnership between local businesses and the Detroit Police Department. Security cameras were placed outside of gas stations and party stores, which at the time were considered havens for violent crime, mainly because of their late operating hours. Well, now this so-called initiative has morphed into an experiment that could adversely affect the lives of city residents. During this past summer, the work of activists and academics forced Detroit police to reveal that facial recognition software is a built-in component. This technology is supposed to be able to take the facial features from still photos or videos and match them to images in a database. But experts reveal the technology is flawed, especially when it comes to identifying people of color. The only way the flaws can be corrected is through the continued use of the software. Not only is this the largest experiment in the, on a concentration of black people in the United States in recent years, it could cost taxpayers and small business owners millions of dollars to maintain. But is using a flawed technology the best way to reduce crime? What if this money was used to put more resources in the hands of the people? Can we imagine how stronger communities would create a safer environment and how a more equitable society might erase the conditions which lead to crime in the first place? This is the topic of discussion during this Premier Riverwise podcast. Just going to hop right into it. We, this is our first time. Uh, so we want to, first of all, thank all of our listeners. Uh, if this is your first time listening in with us, you are a part of something very special. So shout out to you. And uh, today we are going to be talking about a couple of different things that are affecting the city of Detroit. Uh, so I'm going to center around police surveillance. I'm going to have uh, Maz, I'm going to throw it to you and let you uh, give us a little more information about that and about our guest Whitley today. I appreciate it. Thank you for that wonderful introduction, Art Dealer Dean, coming in hot. Um, uh, before we get started and, and uh, introduce and engage with our wonderful guest, Sweetly Graham Barry from the Detroit Justice Center, um, I wanted to take a moment to kind of uh, introduce uh, a little bit about what we're going to be um, talking about and around and what we're affected by. Um, this project itself was inspired by um, the work that is being done with the Riverwise magazine and the most uh, – an issue that came out a while ago that focused on police surveillance in the city of Detroit, specifically inspired by the Project Greenlight. Um, so I just want to run a little bit about that. I know that uh, Whitley has some things um, surrounding and beyond that that we want to touch on. But first, I'd like to just give you guys a little information um, Project Greenlight itself started in 2016 with eight locations, uh, gas stations, because uh, it, it was said that um, gas stations and liquor stores were uh, hotspots for crime being open late and kind of hubs for uh, that kind of activity. Uh, since then, it has expanded exponentially. Um, we have 560 plus locations throughout the city, and it's not just liquor stores and gas stations anymore. We have um, senior living facilities. Uh, housing projects, um, uh, what do you call it, care, uh, churches, um, urgent cares, um, even some schools, some um, like trade schools are now have, oh, have wow. cameras in them. Um, I think a lot of people see this and they see it as, as a, a place of safety. Um, 
And in a lot of ways, that is what is it is being marketed as. But I just think that there are some some important aspects that a lot of the public do not understand. Uh, it it costs about uh, between one thousand and six thousand dollars for any business to buy, and it becomes a priority one for the Detroit police, um, and they are streaming. 24-7 live video feeds to these um, real-time crime centers that are manned by un... Uh, un Uh-oh, someone check your phone. Um, unsworn in civilians. So it's not cops that are surveilling. These are civilians uh, who are monitoring these uh, call centers. Uh, they use... Uh, this uh, a, a software called Face Plus that uses 8 million criminal photos and 32 million driver's license and ID photos uh, from the state of Michigan. So every almost every citizen's face is in this database that is operating in real time. Um, I think that I think that something like this, uh, because we are seeing it as as it just pushed as I mean. It's given to us ultimately as a way to keep the public safe, but it is also being voted on and implemented in a way that does not include the public. I think that is something that is important for us to engage with and understand and know why these things are being pushed to a predominantly black community from technology that uh, statistically misidentifies women and especially women of color and men of co people of color in general um, and these things are just being you know streamlined into a city that is 70 percent um african-american all right cool and so i just want to make sure i understand what's going on <clears throat> so basically at this point project Greenlight is a civilian ran surveillance program that runs 24 hours in 24 hours seven days a week and is glitchy, especially when it comes to minorities and minority women. I think it's important not to say civilian run. Okay, uh, it is civilian monitored, but civilian there are there are monitored. police. There. It, is a, it is a these real time crime centers are parts of the Detroit Police Department, but they are monitored not by uh, like sworn officers. There are uh, civilian monitors. It is not run by civilians. It is not something that we have active engagement in. We are just subjected to it. Okay. And so, and so are these like private citizens to just like need a job who might be working at these centers? I, I couldn't tell you how the, the vetting process to getting in there, but I mean, I think but you don't have to be an officer pretty much. No, you do not have to be sworn okay. officer. Um, I think that, uh, now would be a good time to have Whitley come in and, and join the conversation. She is a staff attorney at the Detroit Justice Center working on uh, economic... Equity. Equity. Thank you. Uh, uh, do you want to say a little bit about who you are, um, why this topic is relevant, and, and what the work that you do? Yeah, so thank you guys for having me here today. I'm excited to be here to talk with you all. So, um, yes, I work with the Detroit Justice Center, which is a nonprofit law firm committed to making Detroit a more just and equitable city. And we believe that you can't do that without addressing the effects of mass incarceration on the residents of the city and their loved ones. Um, so DJC has a couple of different groups that work on in different practice areas. And so we have one group, our legal services team, which deals with a number of number of different issues, sort of like expungements. Um, they deal with some family law-related issues, um, helping formerly incarcerated persons kind of readjust to coming back to the, to the rest of the world. Um, and they also do a lot of low-level traffic 
work too mm-hmm. with um, mm-hmm. the issue where you know you get a ticket and you can't pay it. Tickets compound. You end up with a warrant, and now all of a sudden you um, get arrested for something that was not originally a jailable offense, right? So it's sort of criminalizing poverty. So we have one team that kind of works with those issues. My team is the economic equity practice. And so my colleague, Eric Williams, and I focus on a number of different issues that work to address systemic inequities here in the city. Um, So we work on a number of different things, like uh, worker-owned cooperatives are a lot of my focus and cooperative economics. Um, But also we work with like the community benefits ordinance that Detroit has and actually pioneered for the country. Um, we work for permanent affordable housing through community land trusts. Um, yeah, we work basically to address historical inequities that have been systematized into our government and into our policies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a, a good moment to kind of let's step back and understand, like, I mean, that's incredible work. And I'm very happy that there are people out there, you know, committed to that kind of justice. Um, that kind of work. Why is that? important when we look at these kind of like, I mean, using the word systemic, something like the Project Greenlight thing, that is something that is a a continued surveillance state, something that is policing the community and people are giving up uh, a lot of their privacy for the relative idea of safety. Could you talk a little bit about like how that kind of systemic, even like acceptance of policing happens when you think about like these um, sorry. Go ahead. Right. No. So thank you for that question. So in terms of inequities, I mean, you go all the way back to um, slavery days where we want to make sure that black people don't gather together. Right. We want to make sure that you are constantly being watched, that you don't have the freedom to sort of um, to talk to one another, to plan, to make movements. Um, and I think in, in, in maybe somewhat of a distant sense, you see that here where it's like we still want to police you. We still want to make sure that you're watched in all times, watched at all times. And I think that um, the idea of Project Greenlight also sort of infringes on a right that's not really a traditional right, but your right to privacy or anonymity. Um, your right to anonymity, really, which is not an official right that you'll find in any laws, but it's something that um, has never been under attack as it is now with something like Project Greenlight. So it sort of reinforces the over-policing of certain communities, right? Because we don't see Project Greenlight being offered as a solution in any other community because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all communities, all cities in suburban Michigan as well have crime too. We don't see that being offered there, but conveniently it's a solution on, you know, one of the cities with the largest black population in the country. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's... I think that's you see. I mean, this idea of like facial recognition uh, technology. There's a lot of times where you see technology kind of it, it happens so quickly that the judicial system is always playing catch up and how they you know deal with mm-hmm. how do we create laws to you know maintain the the rights that we are given mm-hmm. when it comes to technology. So people just see technology and kind of assume like alongside getting new phones and new gadgets and new gear that technology is across the board positive but there are these very insidious things that keep us under the watchful eye of a, of a power structure that hasn't historically been very good to us yeah i mean there are there are a lot of concerns that it has also um the idea of privatization of these systems, right? Because mm-hmm. you have um, 
people like Dan Gilbert, right, who also have cameras and, and devices to monitor people all over the city. Um, and you, I mean, in terms of like who can access this information, what can be hacked, I mean. I, I was, I think it was interesting when I was doing some research on uh, on the project Greenlight and, and the technology that is being used that it, it, they were saying that it was shared with, you know, not only the Detroit, Detroit Police Department, but Homeland, Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, and Rock Financial, which I found very interesting mm -hmm. because it's a, a private, you know, uh, corporation that has a huge investment in the city also it, like uh the idea of utilizing they have to use these high speed connections which is also offered by rocket fiber mm -hmm. um which is also part of the dan gilbert um conglomerate i suppose mm -hmm. so no that's very true um yeah i mean it's problematic in a number of different ways they've also been used at protests in certain cities to identify protesters um yeah to see if any of them had different police records and then to go and target them specifically in ferguson that was a, yeah. a huge issue um for people who came out to protest that uh killing of a young black man were used facial recognition um to yeah see if they had outstanding warrants and were able to arrest them when they were peacefully protesting um so i think that's a good part to understand why there uh it, there's conflict in in this kind of blanket acceptance of green light. But I think, uh, Dean, you had some questions about how, how this, how this can be positive or how that people can, you know, see this, it, there is now, um, presence of, you know, order perceived law and order in the communities. And I think it was interesting before, uh, we started recording, you used a term that I think plays into this, which is like, and, and we can talk about it, but like when we assume sketchy neighborhoods or neighborhoods that are one thing and not another, how that can play into the hands of these, um, you know, this idea of us not being able to police ourselves. And so they are helping us to maintain our neighborhoods when they are perceived to be sketchy. Yeah. Did I say sketchy? You did. Oh, wow. Very interesting. <laughs> Man. Calling so, you out on the pod, my guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and, and you look, I'm totally fine with that because, you know, um, I don't necessarily think that it's, that it's a poor descriptor when it comes to describing a neighborhood that may experience, you know, some kind of, for whatever reason, you know, heightened sense of crime. And so, like, the word sketchy, that how we use it is that, like, I don't know, I don't trust it. And so I might not trust myself to be in a neighborhood where... Uh, where I feel like it's a, it's a better opportunity for this uh, for this type of thing to take place. Uh, but that don't mean that I don't feel bad about it either, right? <laughs> and so I think that's really what I was getting at when we were uh, when we were first engaging in the conversation is earlier this week or late last week, two neighborhoods that I spent a lot of time in uh, experienced shootings. And one was, you know, what we would call sketchy and the other one wasn't so much. And but both of these places were green light partners and one of them for sure, you know, were able to identify these individuals allegedly because, again, we've just acknowledged that the that the system is faulty and that it does a poor job of recognizing melanated people. Mm -hmm. Correct. Mm -hmm. All right. And so uh, and so I recognize on one level that it's that it's just wrong to to like be nosy like that and to be all over somebody's shoulder and to make them feel like they aren't trustworthy or that they don't, that they, that the place that they live in isn't safe for them. 
but also I recognize the reality that crimes do take place and people need to be held accountable and uh, families need to be comforted. I think that's more of the place that I was coming from is that um, from a compassionate place that if this is something that's going to, you know, help a family member feel better or like, you know, help them feel vindicated, then maybe I could get behind it. And so, yeah, my line of questioning started from there. It's like, how do we reconcile the need for policing, even if it's just self and community policing versus uh, standing up to something that's just, you know, flat out wrong? Right. Um, so I think you have a good point there because I have um, some close friends um, and family members, too, who, who are fan. Well, I don't know if I want to use the word fan, but who are in support of Project Greenlight um, for the exact reason that you said, because let's say it can help. It potentially can help identify um, people who committed crimes after the crime has committed. Right. And I also just want to note that a lot of what. Um, the Detroit Police Department um, said over the last two years, over the last three years in relation to Project Greenlight was that it will help stop crimes. Pro Project Greenlight does not help stop crimes while they are being committed. It has not stopped a single crime in, during the actual commission. So it doesn't do that. Now, what you mentioned, what it can do potentially is help um, someone reviewing the footage. It can help potentially identify someone who committed the crime. But I think the question comes, um, when we were talking about the word sketchy, you said, you know, some neighborhoods identified as sketchy for whatever reason, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the term I wanted to zero in, now, in on is for whatever reason, right? Okay. Like, what's happening? What are the reasons that have come together to create the situations in this neighborhood that are happening, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm shifting the conversation a little bit, but to address your question, you've got historic disinvestment in this entire city and in so many different neighborhoods and in black people in general, but particularly in Detroit, you know, money being... Um, siphoned into other suburban cities and other areas in the state um, so that it leaves our community so disinvested that you end up creating these circumstances um, where you end up with people not having enough money and committing crimes to survive, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that those reasons are important to pay attention to. But also you have to look at the question of if I have all this money, right, because the state does have a fair amount of money and so does the city, and we're determining where we want to invest it. Do we want to invest it in um, a lot of money, right, in terms of people who are reviewing 24-7 footage, real crime centers, in terms of catching all the people who commit crimes, right, which is a short-term, it's not even a fix. It's something to potentially make victims and family members of victims of crimes feel better, right? That's putting a Band-Aid on the issue instead of mm -hmm. looking at what might stop crimes in the first place, right? Like if you give people living wages, if you invest in public spaces, if you invest in our, put more money into our schools instead of putting, you know, millions of dollars in surveillance and over-policing to lock more people up. I think it's also, I think it's interesting to, or a good note to make about the amount of uh, th those funds and what they actually do and and some of we've talked about the like the the actual uh, efficacy of project greenlight when uh, a business signs up they have an initial like payment setup which can be anything from one thousand dollars to six thousand dollars and then sixteen hundred dollars a year for upkeep um, with that when they sign that contract it, when it first when it was first just eight um, locations there was a much uh, a, a much more significant rise in police presence because there was only eight. Now that we're at you know 500 plus, the the police department hasn't expanded 
as this has expanded. Um, and when a new business signs on, in their contract, it says, you will not necessarily always be monitored. You, we cannot guarantee that we are monitoring. So we are paying for this idea of safety. Literally, this idea, this this understanding that the green light feels safe, but in the contract, it's saying that we cannot guarantee that we are going to give you a number one priority. And the more that it expands, and and when, we, when we're talking about the amount of money, the mayor has uh, introduced the what he called the capital agenda, and he wants to spend uh, one million one hundred thousand to expand this project to include uh, traffic lights, to include bus stops, uh, to have a he has a three hundred fifty thousand dollar expansion to include drones, which I believe is like absolutely absolutely insane. Um, but this is this is a lot a lot of money invested into something that isn't necessarily coming with like what I've read they're expanding the real time crime centers not necessarily the amount of police officers who are on the street being able to respond to these so you have <clears throat> excuse me you have this idea of safety that does offer this kind of salve to those people who have experienced the violent crime but in reality this is not actually and you're taking uh, like Whitley said these these funds that could be Reappropriated to actual like community and betterment. Yeah. Yeah. So I get that part, and so one, so and so these are the things that I'm thinking as I listen to you guys, right? So we talk about the other real time crime centers, and <clears throat> on one hand, I hear again it's ineffective, but on the other hand, I hear job creation. On the other, uh, we talk about. Let's see. Um, and, and, and again, it keep, and for me, what it keeps coming back to is, and I get because, again, I know we have data, we have studies, we have experts who tell us that it's wrong, it's ineffective, it's a poor way to spend money. But I don't understand, or, or, or what I think about speaking on behalf of the community, right? My question would be is, how do I separate these facts from? what's true for me and so what might be true for me is that i live up the street from a green light gas station and i always see squad cars there when there's a crime in progress and it seems like the response time is getting faster in my neighborhood and so how do how do we uh how do we get people to like really bond to the to the into the idea that maybe their eyes are lying to them right so i think it's kind of this this idea that our thoughts are almost wedded to the idea of okay, we want to be protected against crime mm -hmm. instead of like alleviating the crime at the root. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Because it's like, let's still deal with the leaves that are falling off in this mm -hmm. metaphor, the crimes. Oh, okay. And so, right? and, so, and, so and I hate to interrupt you. I apologize. No, but, okay. but then the, uh, even speaking to that point, right? And so I know that things like uh, the Detroit Youth Employment Project exist and the... Um, the uh, the they're ramping up like the uh, the trade education that the city is providing and they're doing things like Motor City Match and things like that. And so, again, like none of these things are necessarily speaking to crime prevention itself, except by a fringe benefit of when you create economic empowerment, you assume that crime goes down. But at the same time, doesn't accountability or doesn't an accountability need to be put in place? And aside from being effective, how can we? How can we work towards making Project Greenlight an effective thing? Or are we saying that, that that's 
just completely unethical and off the table. Well, I think I think what you were getting to, what Lee was getting to, and I think was important is 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 taking even a further step back and understanding that we've bought into a philosophy of of crime and punishment that we like accepting Project Greenlight, whether or not it's actually effective, but we accept that we are incapable of creating a, 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 a system, just a just society, a system yeah. outside of the p- punishment. Um, and that's, I think I would like, uh, I think we should, I would hear a little bit about the work that you do and how it is answering that question. I do, I do uh, appreciate that we are questioning the like, whether or not we should have it. And I think it's interesting to always engage with technology and whether it's good or bad, because it isn't also inherently bad, but taking a second to say that we want a just society and that there are ways to do that. How um, and in what capacity are you choosing to create? Like, could you tell us a little bit about the worker co-ops and how that is um, providing an, a different way forward? Yeah. Um, part of me wants to address your Sorry. question. Sorry, uh, we, can, we can keep going back too. I think that uh, it, do, it doesn't have to be a hard stop. I just think that it's a good, a good one. So if you, want yeah. to, if you want to answer that and we can keep going. DJC does a lot of awesome work, and so I kind of want, I want to talk about everything. I want to talk about the bail project. I want to talk about <laughs> and they they are all related, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so I mean, I think the question is, we've got all this money, but it's the question of like where we're putting it in and what we're putting it into. Because you're like, for the record, what's all this money? Like, if we could get some kind of idea of what we spent annually, did we? Did I miss that part? No, I, I think I I mentioned kind of like I mean, if you take take. I only know, I have the numbers for the Project Greenlight, right? So if you mm-hmm. just take, uh, I mean, let's say it's median four thousand dollars. It's one to six. Four thousand multiplied by five hundred and sixty and growing, mm-hmm. on top of an annual buy-in of uh, continued buy-in of sixteen hundred. So that's a significant amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I'm not going to pretend to be a math whiz and do that off the top of my head. Yeah, because it sounds like some of, some of that money that you just mentioned, or a lot of it, is private money coming from you know people who want to give this added protection to their business and their, their investment in whatever neighborhood they're in. Yeah, which is also mildly problematic because now you've got people who can pay for better mm-hmm. police protection, which they should be getting to begin with, ah, right? Yeah. <laughs> there we go. And so now it creates this hierarchy that prioritizes I don't know, I guess, more affluent businesses over other businesses when it's the police's job to be doing this anyway. And then once all the businesses start getting Project Greenlight, then you're basically there. The, it, it gets it rid of the up. hierarchy. And we're really just paying the police extra money to do their jobs mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. Project Greenlight, which is also problematic. And I, I think that's when you look at some of the when we talk about we've said that this isn't effective. A lot of the studies are saying that nationally crime is going down, which is a great thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, car thefts are going down nationally. A lot of these uh, violent and uh, armed crimes are going down. And there is not a direct correlation. They're looking at businesses that are in the same area as Project Greenlight. And it's mm-hmm. the numbers are, are there's not enough difference mm-hmm. to show that that green light is actually creating that change. It's just a lowered uh, rate uh, kind of across the board. Um, right. Yeah. So now I'm picking up on your, your segue, but um, in terms, when you're looking at a community, um, families, households where you don't have enough money, I think that's where things start to get dicey, um, where you see disinvested communities and you see people struggling, right? Um, for a number of different um, reasons, as you said earlier. And I think, so one of the, the, 
well, we work in a couple of different re- arenas. Like I said, I'm community land trust for permanent affordable housing, right? Because when you've got people who don't have homes, when you've got people who can't afford their rent or can't afford their mortgage, I mean, you've got a number of different issues going on here. You've got, um, are they being paid enough, right, for the work that they're doing? Um, so one of the things that I kind of focus on in terms of economics, like economic equity, is um, the solidarity economy, right, versus our capitalist economy. So the solidarity economy is um, is defined as their economic or business-based efforts that aim to increase the quality of life for a region or community through um, business, through local businesses and nonprofit endeavors, right, which that's a pretty generic, like, happy economy-sounding place, right, and it's... It, you might also say, well, that doesn't sound that different from what we have right now. So what's the difference between that and our capitalist economy? Well, what some of the um, experts are calling our capitalist economy today is also a dominant extractive economy. So what, do, what, what are extractive economics? What does that mean? So an extractive economy um, is the result of a business model based on extracting resources from the earth and from people without replenishing or recycling them. Mm. So when you specifically zero in on people, extracting resources from people, right? So it's the same thing that has been done for for years and years and years in this economy, particularly to people of color um, and poor people, you extract time from them, you extract energy from them, um, and you don't give back in terms of an adequate paycheck, right? You don't give back in terms of job, like benefits at your job, right? You are just being drained, essentially, without enough to give back to your family, without really enough to give back to the business that you're probably working for. Um, It's a very, like, top-down approach to how to run businesses, right? Mm -hmm. So the work that we do to promote a solidarity economy, we promote um, a lot of worker-owned cooperatives. You guys familiar with cooperatives? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, Well, just in case our listeners aren't, a cooperative is um, a business where... A worker-owned cooperative is a business where the workers are also the owners. Okay, so instead of this top-down trickle-down where you have a few owners at the top, and as the business grows, your paycheck might stay the same because you don't get a raise, but all the extra money that the business makes goes up to the to the owner, up to the top. Right. In a cooperative, because all the workers are also owners, as the business makes more money, um, all of the workers then make more money too because they're also owners. Right. So that's kind of the idea. I mean, it touches on a lot of different um, themes, but using money as our tool instead of like us being money's tool. Um, it also addresses the idea of work as a burden because that's pretty rampant um, in the United States as a whole. But the idea that like work is my burden. I wouldn't go to work if I didn't have to today. I don't like what I'm doing. I don't really care much about this company. But the idea, the hope, the vision for a just city and a just economy is the idea that um, you helped make this business, you helped shape this business, you helped decide what you get paid, what your work is worth, what your benefits look like, what you guys can can make work in, in the books at the end of the day. Um, you decide what your business values are. Um, and it's designed to let your workers have the primary voice of the company because they're also the owners. Um, so it's an idea of kind of shifting ownership, pooling resources together to start that business, right? So you don't take a second mortgage out on your house to start, you know, this new business you want to start. But um, yeah, so 
it's kind of, I guess, shifting our, our economics to hopefully support ourselves as well um, so that we're not always dependent on large, you know, corporations and, and businesses that have nothing to do with Michigan, nothing to do with Detroit. Mm. Um, so the money's just leaving, essentially. You know, money that you're struggling to make is then leaving your community. Are you are, are you seeing uh, a positive reaction to this kind of work? I, I mean, it's kind of, that's a, I mean, when you start talking about like, our uh, consumer like structure people are really ingrained in that it's something that it's really hard for people to even recognize that it's it's destroying them or grinding them down mm-hmm. are you seeing like are there examples of the work that's being done or people who are 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 really turning into buying and like it's a whole new paradigm of of working and is that something that is I mean, I think it's amazing, but I'm just curious as to how people are receiving public it. reception. Yeah. yeah. So it's actually not new. If you look back in the olden days, as my dad would say, um, at so you have like Fannie Lou Hamer, right? And her land trusts that had like, um, so they were being targeted by white people in the 30s, I want to say, or up to the civil rights movement. You had that whole time period. So in the civil rights movement, you had them pooling land together and growing their own crops, securing places where people could live. Because, you know, you essentially had people being fired for exercising the right to vote, all mm-hmm. these different um, black people being fired for all these different reasons. Um, so the land trusts were essentially ways for people to pool their resources and to pool their work um, in order to support themselves. So it's an idea, the idea of pooling resources and the shared economy, quote unquote, Um it's not a new idea. That's the point that I was getting to mm-hmm. in a long-winded yeah. way there. Mm-hmm. Um, is that it's something that actually kind of dates back. We just didn't call it, we didn't call it a cooperative then, right? And so we've kind of formalized it and rebranded it. And so now, um, you know, it sounds kind of new and shiny, but um, but it's not really that new, the idea of pooling resources. But to answer your question, in terms of public perception, now you're 100% spot on. It's difficult to... I mean, what we do we learn about economics, period? First of all, we learn very little right. in school. And then what we do learn is very capitalist friendly, you know, um, because typically people in power as the hierarchy go up are influencing what you're learning. Um, they're providing all your goods and they want you to be OK with the capitalist economy because it benefits the top down, you know. Um, so it is it's it's a lot of work mm-hmm. because it's essentially like doing an economics lesson right so it's been a lot of learning and studying for me too in marrying law with like economics what are the what what is a is a way for you to target a group that is like uh um eligible for this kind of shift i I don't know if i mean because you know you're not going into the auto industry to try and change this around but are there like excuse me people doing certain types of work or active in the communities that this uh, is easier to kind of start engaging with and start implementing um, are the people that you focus on, you know? Yeah, so I think that transitioning into co-ops rather than just starting one from scratch is a really viable business option for older people in the community, let's say, who've had a business for years. Um, and so you've got a couple different options. Let's say the business is struggling or, um, or you've got someone who's about to retire. And they've got all this knowledge and all this experience, this wholly functioning business, and mm-hmm. hopefully employees too. Um, 
that are all going to not have jobs when this person retires. So what you have there is an opportunity for the workers to kind of mobilize with um, some different support resources to help them transform whatever the business currently is into a cooperative. So all the owner, so all of the workers can take over and then own pieces of the business um, after the person retires, right? Uh, so I think those are really ideal businesses that that might want to make a shift to cooperatives and where the employees are interested in maybe changing things, um, owning a piece of the business, mm -hmm. um, and not just being employees. You know, they're owners then. I dig that, right? And so. I have a few questions about work cooperatives. And uh, first of all, let me say this. These types of conversations always remind me that I'm a little more conservative than I think. And so <laughs> I'm coming with some uh, with some things that I feel like maybe just a teensy weensy embarrassed about asking because I don't really have the language to describe them. But I trust that this is a okay, safe space, on. right? Bring it on. All right. So work cooperatives. As it relates to Project Greenlight, is this something that we could look uh, to as an alternative solution that maybe addresses crime reduction and like maybe more specifically recidivism reduction? Yeah, in a, in a, not in a direct, I wouldn't say in a super directly correlated way, but in mm -hmm. an indirect way, yes. Um, so the idea is we want to divest from the prison industrial complex, mm -hmm. right? We want to divest from putting more money into policing, which these cameras essentially do. They are forms of policing without people. They use technology to police us. Mm -hmm. um, so it's divesting from that and investing into other places that are going to decrease the need for policing to begin with, right? So investing into worker-owned cooperatives, into shared economics, into community land trusts, into community benefits, um, into all these different things, into participatory budgeting, um, into more support and more rights for our recently um, released friends, for our formerly incarcerated persons. Um, investing into all those areas, I mean, I think is a drastic way to reduce recidivism and to protect community members, to invest in community members. And that's what you would do essentially with all those funds where it's saying we shouldn't be spending it on this, what should we be spending it on, all those funds. Um, these are some of the examples that we're promoting. And, pr and, we're, and they're examples that are sustainable and long lasting and not short fixes, right? Mm -hmm. So this type of economics, um, the solidarity economy, and like worker-owned cooperatives are hopefully businesses that you can teach your kids that you take pride in, that you can pass on if you need to, um, and that welcome wealth to more workers that want to join, you know, that spread the wealth. So, Okay, and, just, and so basically it just sounds like at every turn, a community resource is always a better option than surveillance. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I do believe that. I dig it. I appreciate that. Thanks for thank you for dropping that on us, Whitley. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> um, just uh, I, I think that this has been great, and I I hope that we've been able to touch on uh, a lot of the 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 information that is not necessarily readily available for some people, and also touching on some of the things that are happening um, outside of that um, that system. Um, what what because this is I mean this is hard work like you said what was your inspiration what brought you into joining the detroit justice center and focusing on this um was it just a direct line from the work the schooling that you did or is there something that drew you to this sort of work um 
I'm getting personal okay. now. No, you are. I'm <laughs> figuring out how to best phrase my answer. So I guess I have always had um, work. Okay, let me rephrase that. Work is hard, right? You put a lot of time, put a lot of energy into it. Absolutely. Everybody can understand that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I just feel like, and I luckily I've been blessed enough to have an option in what I'm doing. Not everybody always has options and the means to choose exactly what they want to do. Um, but if I, I felt like if I was going to be doing all this work, I wanted to be so, doing something that actually made a difference and had a positive impact on the community around me. I actually had an impact for people who needed some investment, you know, for cities that needed an investment because sometimes certain people, certain groups are overlooked. We all know that. Mm. Um so that's always been the kind of feeling of mine. It's if I'm otherwise, I just I won't put in that much effort. Do you know what yeah. I mean? If I'm not that into the job, I won't put Absolutely. in that much effort. I know, as a self-employed person, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that kind of sparked my interest in public service in general. Um, so I worked with our community economic development law clinic in law school in D.C., um, where I worked with. Um, a low equity housing cooperative, and I worked with a bilingual daycare, a couple different clients, um, and I had a fantastic experience. I remember I was telling the story um, to some college to some colleagues earlier this week, but I remember when I started law school after my first year, I was like, I don't know if this is really where I should be. Mm. And I was like, now I'm I don't know if you can cuss, but it's like now I'm like sixty thousand dollars in <laughs> after my first year. Yeah. If I just leave, I've lost sixty thousand dollars, you know. So and I, and I don't have this degree. So I was like, okay, I'll stay. And I ended up in my, um, my, the community economic development law clinic at my school. And I was like, oh, this is why I'm here. Mm. I didn't even know community development law, movement lawyering, which is what we say we do at DJC, um, which is what we call it. I didn't even know that, that those existed as options, right? And it sort of wedded two skill sets, something that I was passionate about, as well as the skill set that I had um, into you know, a career that I could have. So I came back to Detroit and was not doing this at all. Um, I was actually doing commercial litigation at at a larger firm, but it was my way to get back to the city Mm. because all of my connections in the community development arena were in D.C., Maryland, Virginia, the DMV. So I came back here and then met our executive director, um, Amanda Alexander, and, you know, it was kind of love at first sight and ended up um, Mm, with DJC's economic equity practice. Oh, well, that's great. I love, I, I just want to say I love the term movement lawyering. I, I think that's too. I think that's fantastic. I think that there's a lot that when we look to grassroots or alternative or radical uh, solutions, people can turn themselves off because they feel like it's a specific type of person or a specific type of, of philosophy that may not fit into the world that they are not comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And I think seeing... Um, I mean, and this is uh, just when people start thinking of radical change can sound like something so far away. But yeah. if you see like your and this is putting weight to jobs, which I don't always love. But like if you see a lawyer who's doing movement lawyering or someone who is, you know, like Doctors Without Borders or things that a job that may in your mind not seem radical doing and engaging with and participating in just and radical change. Um, that's really inspiring. And I'm. I'm really happy that you're doing the work that you're doing. Thanks. I mean, we live in the world of intersectionality now, right? Like um, in understanding how all these different uh, vocations and job and trainings and skill set and life experiences, not necessarily just degrees, but how all of these things are useful, mm-hmm. right? And they have weight and worth and value. And so I think, I mean, 
I don't know, and learning to kind of pair lawyers that, you know, we can actually be useful and help like real problems and real people and real yeah. struggles um, is one thing to note, but not just us, like everybody. everybody. You know what I mean? The, the, the maintenance staff who fix all of our equipment and who clean our facilities, like people wouldn't want to come to your business. People wouldn't want to support you without them. So, I mean, everybody works to make to make these businesses, to make these communities work, and everybody's important. So, you know, it's just re- remembering that, trying to keep that in mind, too, I think. Absolutely. So definitely thank you again to Willie. Everybody clap it up for Willie one time. Thank you for coming out <laughs> and being a part of the very first Riverwise podcast. Definitely looking forward to uh, to many more of these. We uh, got into a really important issue today that ties into just an even larger issue that I'm uh, that I've been thinking about. Just about how Detroit seems like it's been under siege for the last couple of years, even with the school system and uh, the Project Green Light, and just on and on and on and on. And so, like no, these are these thoughts are my own. First of all, let me say for <laughs> before we sign off, but. Um, Looking forward to definitely getting getting into more of how Riverwise can be an asset through the uh, through the airways for the community by empowering the people. So uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Tune in on the next drop, and we will see you soon. Peace. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Welcome to the Riverwise podcast. This is our maiden voyage into a podcast that's taking um, imminent issues that are affecting our community and looking at uh, how we collectively solve them from a grassroots perspective. Um, my name is Amas Muhammad, and I am joined um, by my eminent and inspiring co-host, Mr. Eric Campbell. <laughs> Peace, everyone. This is Eric from Riverwise. Um, thank you so much for joining us and um, taking this opportunity with us to expand our coverage of what we call, what some call visionary organizing happening in and around the city of Detroit. Um, The podcast came about as kind of an organic extension of some other projects we've been doing outside of the magazine, including the community conversations, uh, which kind of evolved into the writing workshops. And we have this opportunity to to do a podcast which we think will, uh, will assist us and you in capturing your voice and getting some of these stories uh, and kind of correcting that narrative about what's going on in, in and around the city and some of the work that's being done to build community and create new institutions. Um, I want to say hello, first of all, to uh, Rod Montz from the ACLU. Thank you so much for being here, Mr. Montz. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, I'm going to start off. Do, do you mind if I just, no, put, please. If I just jump in there right Get away? Go, real go quick. for it. Um, I, I want to kind of bring this up to... Uh, the present day, um, you know, I mentioned before that what got, what got us into this issue was the fact that there was a realization that talks were being held between the police chief, the mayor's office. Um, I, when I say when well, I talked, but proposals were being given to the to the uh, uh, the board of police commissioners from the police chief from the city um, that had to do with increasing. The number of cameras that had to do with increasing funding for cameras and other similar technologies. Um, why don't we start by asking you, what, when did you get, when did the ACLU and or yourself get involved in this project, and what was what was kind of the uh, what was what was kind of the tipping point for you guys? Well, much like Riverwise, Tawana got us involved in this too. She reached out to me and asked uh, where the ACLU stood on um, Project Greenlight and police surveillance overall. Um, And I share with her that um, the ACLU has had privacy concerns relative to police surveillance for a number of years. We've also been respectful 
of those Detroiters who feel so unsafe in their communities that they're willing to sacrifice their rights um, and have a camera placed there um, to to spy on them, essentially, um, because they felt that the police couldn't keep them protected. So um, we didn't feel it was appropriate to come in and say, well, you know, we don't want those cameras there and and we're not going to, you know, be respectful of your rights um, as a resident of the city of Detroit. And so it was not until uh, Tawana approached us and asked us to get involved that we did so. Tawana, she was she got this whole thing started, almost seems like. I just saw Tawana, actually, she just came back from like a nationwide tour talking about this issue. So she's- uh, She is always Tawana's on the road. Tawana's been at work. <laughs> yeah. Always the whole, the whole time. Oh, the True warrior. Because yes. yeah. it's like, she talks about all the stuff and then she also brings folks into the work, That's right? right. Yeah. Like she's yeah. constantly bringing more folks in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, PG, I know that uh, BYP 100 has been very active uh, in this campaign as well, in this resistance against cameras. Um, We've seen them at uh, at meetings, board of uh, police commissioner meetings. We've seen them in the streets. Um, what is the is there, is there maybe a strategy we can talk about as far as a strategy of resistance? Um, I'm sure it's multi pronged, but um, can you talk about how you guys have gone into uh, addressing this issue? Yeah. So. BYP 100 is fundamentally an abolitionist organization, which means that we, one of our core values is around the abolition of police, prison, surveillance, uh, incarceration of all forms. Um, and so when we were trying to, as a, as a chapter, figure out what we wanted to focus on for our campaign-based work, um, we were all very compelled by what was going on with Project Greenlight. Mm-hmm. And we, we had actually been discussing it since it was first announced as a group, like we had been like hearing about it and talking about it. Um, mm. And then finally we're just like, okay, there's, they're just, they just keep expanding. There was a moment where they were talking about trying to make it mandatory. And I think that was mm. the moment where we were just like, okay, now nah, we have to try to do something before they try to force this on businesses um, rather than it being like a choice that folks can actively decide. Mm. Um, and so I guess just our campaign, Greenlight Black Futures or Blackout Greenlight is really about um, a strategy of both like community education and raising the shared consciousness about what surveillance is, what it, the impact it has on our communities. Um, and also it's really about developing a culture of safety mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, what is it, what will it actually take? Are we willing to do the work it actually takes to have communities that are safe for all of us? Um, we, and we see that work happening through conversation, through relationship building, through deep relational organizing. Um, and so we've been doing a lot of political education work mostly for the last year, um, just because um, when we first started this campaign, we started by doing a community survey and we kind of just asked folks about what they knew about it, what they thought about um, how over-policing, hyper-surveillance, uh, what would keep what they felt like would keep them safe in their communities. Um, and it was really shocking to, to the degree of which like folks had no idea what Project Greenlight was mm-hmm. early on, mm-hmm. right? Early mm-hmm. on, mm-hmm. folks saw the green lights and and from our, you know, from the information we got through this survey, most of the folks we talked to didn't know what those green lights were. They're like, yeah, I've seen those. Doesn't that mean that's a dispensary or whatever? And we're just right. like, no, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> no. Um, and so that to us was a glaring thing. Like we just need to educate our folks. Folks just need to know what this is. Um, and so, yeah, that's been a major part of our strategy is political education. Um, and then the other part of our strategy is really about um, directly resisting and confronting the board of police commissioners and other decision makers about 
priorities. Like, what are what is your priority for real? Mm-hmm. Is your priority actually to keep us safe? Mm-hmm. Because if it is, there are all these other things that could be prioritized mm-hmm. over this hyper surveillance program. Um, and so that's really it's uh, this direct resistance and also education has well, been what we've been doing yeah. so far. Yeah, and I appreciate the work that you all have been doing. It's so important to educate people in the community because so many people don't know. And yeah, yeah. No. And, and it's uh, not their fault that they don't that's know, right. right? That's right. Like, there's just mm-hmm. so much convoluted mess that we get about what this program is. There's right. just, and then the lack of access to information about what it actually is. You know, it's mm-hmm. just so, yeah, a lot of people don't know. Uh, I would like to. Uh, from both of you um, because this is that we were having a conversation with a lot of people in this room who do know a lot mm-hmm. and so I feel like there are some times that we continue we have this conversation in a way that we're leaving out to some people who might n- not really understand what it is we're actually talking about so mm. understanding um, while you're doing this educational work and while mm-hmm. you're a- engaging with community what are some of the things that are immediately people like it, we can talk about really quickly here that are uh, misnomers or misconceptions about what this project is mm-hmm. and what are some of the, um, the the efficacy things because I think that's something that people don't understand yeah. even when they know it how effective is this program actually mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. now that we've implemented it now that even when you explain it is it is it directly affecting and taking down the things that are saying it is um, supposedly yeah. take my down. initial thought is to piggyback on something that you said and that is safety uh, surveillance doesn't equal security right we don't we don't many of us don't feel safe because cameras are there we feel less safe mm-hmm. um, but the important thing to think about here is the fact that you know project Greenlight started with a goal of targeting these um, specific high crime areas and it continued to expand to uh, grow into this huge network of nearly 600 cameras now. And it has been sold as this um, proactive crime fighting tool when it is just not. There's no data to suggest that it's effective at doing that. It's an investigative tool, I'll concede that. Um, But you've been selling it as something that reduces crime, and that just is not the case. And that's one of the things that um, I want people to understand because to the other point you made, and I think we'll have a more extensive conversation about this, people who are intent on committing violent crime are going to do it whether there's a camera there or not. Okay, mm-hmm. Period. Right? Mm-hmm. And the only way that you're going to effectively prevent that is to begin to invest in communities to address the issues that lead people into violent crime in the first place. Oh, sure. And research will support that. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's important to think back to 2017 um, when the Detroit Police Department asked for a million dollars to buy facial recognition software, because that really got us to where we are today, where there's more public education and more um, pushback against Greenlight and their surveillance state overall, Um, because the police department used that for two years and nobody knew what they were doing with Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And it was not until they came forth with a formal policy proposal that people started paying attention to what the hell was going on. Um, And BYP and other organizations started to speak out at board of police commissioners meetings. And, you know, we were asked to get involved and we started showing up and sending our people as well. And it got to the point where the, you know, police chief said, had I known 
we were going to get all this flack, we would have approached this differently. <laughs> right? Right, right. So they've yeah. been counting on the fact that uh, people don't know what the hell yeah. is going mm-hmm. on, yeah. what their tax dollars are being spent on. Right. They've been able to right. sell this technology that doesn't do what they claim it does. You know, as a result of that pushback, while we were not happy that the Board of Police Commissioners approved that policy, um, the scope of it was narrowed so that they're hopefully, you know, <laughs> according to the policy, not using that to run real time facial recognition. Mm-hmm. And there are some safeguards in place uh, regarding misuse. But we still don't know what they were doing with it for two years. We submitted a FOIA request on behalf of, you know, 17 organizations here in the city um, seeking to get information on that. And we haven't got um, inadequate response yet. And we're still working um, with the city to figure out, you know, what they're going to be able to give us. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roger, I'm sorry, you said you guys submitted a FOIA for what, what information? Uh, we're looking for... Um, any and all information regarding discussions about acquiring the facial recognition technology, what they um, had initially planned to do with it, what they're um, doing with it now, and what has um, taken place over the last two years, um, including not only the use, but the storage and any reporting that's taken place, too. So we can get a, um, a full understanding of what they intended to do with it, what they're actually doing with it, and what the results of that use um, um, is to this point. Mm-hmm. PG, when you're when you're doing this community education and you're talking to them, what are because even in in building up to this podcast and and doing our research and having our you know development conversations, there are questions about and I think Rod started with this where people eat, will forego their rights for these things. How or what are things that you can explain or help show people like this? Your neighborhood is not necessarily better off with this mm-hmm. um how do we change i guess even the discourse or the conversation to the the narrative of like dangerous neighborhoods or mm-hmm. dangerous communities because i feel like that when we use that language we allow for this kind of surveillance yeah and how do you how do you help people see that they are foregoing something that is very important to that based on a, per, a perception yeah largely. perception perception yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. well i mean some of it's based on perception and some of it's based on experience right like folks yeah. have who have lived in the city for a very long time have experienced you know being vic- victims or uh what's it i don't know i don't like the word victim i can't mm-hmm. think of another word right now no, but, but you're right you yeah. know affected, affected say, by yeah. crime yeah. or affected mm-hmm. by assault or violence mm-hmm. you yeah. know and harm mm-hmm. and so it's a very real thing right like this is it's it's rooted in a perception of state of like what will actually keep us safe, but it's also rooted in like, I have felt deeply unsafe mm-hmm. in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I have felt deeply unsafe walking down the street by myself. Right. Like, um, and that matters, that matters yeah. a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's, so then for me, the question is when I have those kinds of conversations with folks, it's like, okay, so what did you actually need in that moment? Like, what do you actually need in those moments to feel safe? Because it's, probably the cameras isn't gonna you know like mm-hmm. what you were just saying right like mm-hmm. the cameras itself doesn't produce that safety yeah. mm-hmm. um what it what it uh what could potentially produce that safety is knowing who you're walk the houses of the people you're walking by when you're yeah. walking down the block right like being able to know that if you saw something or needed something you could yell or knock on a door or something and somebody would be there yeah um and and so it is a very hard conversation when you're dealing with folks who have experienced that type of violence and harm. Um, and we just, I think for us, especially because we also, we're saying no to the surveillance, but we're also saying no to police. Right. And that's a pretty right. radical statement for folks, you know, to be like, yeah. no police. <laughs> what mm-hmm. do you mean? Like, how do we, but I'm just like, look, 
I have never personally, and this is very like individually, I have never experienced a situation where the police entering it made it better. <laughs> if anything, it escalated it. If anything, it made me more unsafe. Um, I was criminalized for my actions when police entered situations. Like, so for me, I know from my personal experience that police aren't the answer. Police police and surveillance don't actually keep us safe. They're not here for that. The history of policing and of surveillance is really about protecting private property. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and the first private property being enslaved black folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like so that's really and I think once once we start realizing that, like it was never this was never for us. These systems were never for us. These people and yes there are folks, you know, we got I I my I got family members who are police officers, you know, sheriffs. Um and and I'm just like, yeah, like I understand why you think that you're doing good, <laughs> you know, like yeah. that. I'm I'm not missing that, but I am just like there needs to be something else. So some of the community conversations that we've been having and the conversations I have personally with a lot of my folks about abolition and abolition of this type of surveillance and policing is really getting to the root of what what actually makes you feel safe? Like for real? Like what is it? That Answer question that. is such a great it's way a, to start that conversation. Yeah. How, when you think when you look at yourself as being in a safe, what does it look like? What yeah. Is, yeah. does it feel how, like? How do you feel? What is that feeling of safety in your body? Right. Mm-hmm. Because as black folks, particularly for me as like a black queer and trans person, like it's hard for me to feel safety in my body. You know, like mm-hmm. that's just not a feeling I'm used to. And that's the case for a lot of black people. It's like, are we actually used to the feeling of safety in our bodies? When is the moment you felt safe? Mm-hmm. Maybe it was like in your grandmother's lap, right? Or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. What did that feel like? Have you ever felt like that in public? You know, and right. then... And then asking the questions of, you know, well, why, to what you were saying, the root causes of this crime, why are people doing it? Mm-hmm. What what actually, what would support folks yeah. to stop doing that? Can um, you share some of the responses that you've gotten based on that, you know, that that line of questioning? Yeah. Um, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so recently, um, so I've, I've have these conversations all the time my family and all my friends know you know if we talking long enough we gonna end up talking about abolition we gonna end up talking about dismantling the police all this right so uh, recently I had a conversation with some friends from high school some people I knew in high school we got together um, and I was just you know people ask about what you do and all this and you know I'm like I'm an, or- I'm an organizer I'm an abolitionist you know I'm trying to get all the police to go away. <laughs> I'm just like, I don't want this anymore. Um, and so immediately it's just like, whoa, 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 right? So some of the responses I got to those questions I was asking them, um, honestly, was there's a lot, of, a lot of doubt in our ability to feel safe. It's as if folks assume that we are inherently unsafe. You know, it's, and it's, it's, a, mm. it's, um, it's hard. It's so hard as someone who is like trying to radically dream for a better future for all of us. To, to know that there are folks who are so hopeless that mm-hmm. just really feel like this is safety is impossible. You know, people, black folks, poor black folks, you know, these Negroes over there, they just always gonna do that. Like, mm-hmm. they're just always mm-hmm. gonna be on that. They all, you know, I'm, I, and it's just that hopelessness. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of hopelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, just getting deeper and deep, like, you know, it's just a continued questioning of like, well, why this? Why that? Mm-hmm. Why this? Why that? You know, and just continuing to ask why? Why do you think? Well, you might not know, but why do you think? What does it feel like when you think this or whatever? You know, and it's, it's um, so the responses vary, you know, and I have these conversations almost every day at this point. Um, and the responses really do vary. But in that particular conversation with some folks from high schools, like um, the the shift over over the course of our, what, 30 or 45 minutes of talking from like, that's impossible. I can't even believe that you would think that that's possible, Mm -hmm. that police couldn't exist to, well, okay, 
I could see what you mean if we had this, this, and that. Right. If we had well, community that's... investment in jobs or education, if folks had their basic needs met, yeah. they then okay, yeah, maybe, you know? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And even yeah. that is just a step forward for me. That's progress, and that's a way to continue trying to radicalize folks around this idea yeah. and to get really in, more in our bodies of like, we have to believe this is possible before we can imagine anything else to replace it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I appreciate the hell out of what you're saying. I am not an abolitionist, but I have never, well, I would say in my adult life, teen to adult life, not felt safer because of police. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you talk about being impacted. I mean, like many people in the city, I've been the victim of crime, you know, mm-hmm. um, but I, I don't count on police to keep me safe. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to surveillance, I mean, that wouldn't have prevented people from breaking in my house and they didn't use it to investigate my crime. Okay. Right. But yeah. um, it also adds to the trauma um, of folks who already feel traumatized by the environment in which they live. Mm-hmm. You know, as a black man, I'm always carrying that baggage of how I'm viewed mm-hmm. when I step out my front door. Um, and that's really compounded by how I'm watched, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And not having any control over how I'm being watched is frustrating. Yeah. Do you have any, uh, f- coming from the ACLU and the resources and the, the things looking at policy, because these surveillances have been happening in very specific communities. Mm-hmm. Is there any language or understanding of why they have chosen or what they say because it's pretty clear when you implement it in a majority black community what you're doing at least that's what we can see Mm -hmm. but is there any language around that because what do they say when they're saying like this isn't happening in Royal Oak this isn't happening in Farmington Hills these are policies that are happening or these are are, this this Mm. project there are two things about mm -hmm. that I'll say one is that when they try it in communities that aren't majority black, there's more pushback, mm-hmm. right? Um, because people are more educated, you know. So you have bands in places like San Francisco, um, or I can't remember the. Uh, I think it's I can't remember the city in Massachusetts. I want to say Middleton, but um, so it's been banned there, and it's also been banned in Oakland, which has a really large African American population. There are communities. Um, that are really sensitive about um, the overreach of police and they say no to surveillance. Mm -hmm. But in many um, poor communities, that pushback just is not there. Or people are misinformed and don't push back to the degree that they should. I mean, we did a report, I believe it was in 2014, about um, police surveillance in the city of Lansing. Mm. Um, and that was, um, for some of my colleagues, sort of a wake-up call in that there were people in Lansing saying, I don't mind that camera being there because the Lansing police aren't protecting me. If that camera does some good, I'll take it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think many of them were aware of that kind of sentiment in the communities. And I said at that time, there are a lot of folks in Detroit who think the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't agree with them, but, I mean, I respect their right because their tax dollars um, being spent on the police Mm-hmm. aren't helping them either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's it's actually kind of, I this is a thing that I think about with this, particularly with Project Greenlight, is like what they're, what they're selling, because they are literally selling this, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're literally selling this. You have mm-hmm. to buy into this program. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they're selling to business owners is we'll respond. 
Yeah, that's what it Install is. Install this light and this camera. Yep. It will actually come when you call. You yep. become a priority. Mm-hmm. Well, right. But it's just like. investment of my tax dollars, I better be a priority <laughs> anyway. <laughs> right? exactly. Why do I have to spend thousands of dollars yeah, that's right. to buy into to this program for you to finally decide I'm okay, I'm a priority enough to protect. Mm-hmm. And you also suggest that if I don't buy into it, then I'm I am not a not priority. priority. Exactly. Right. And right. to me, that is also, it's just, it's so, it just, it just really exemplifies, I think, the issue around right. policing and the way that we understand it. Mm-hmm. It's like there are certain people who deserve to be protected. There are certain mm-hmm. people who, you know, will be protected first always. And right. then there are other folks often who can't afford it, who, right. you know, who mm-hmm. look a certain way or who live in a certain place who are just like not prioritized. Right. Don't We don't care about their safety. They're choosing like mm-hmm. and we're isolated in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're isolating ourselves right. from each other even more. And worse, you're probably hearing this too. Some people are feeling extorted. Right? Yeah. yeah. Like Literally. They're, they're pressured mm-hmm. into spending this money or else. Yes. Yeah. yeah I don't know if we quite use that word extortion in the issue but I know it was discussed because at a certain point you realize that's exactly what, what's going on yeah. and you pay this amount of money just like gangster style you know you pay this Literally. money you know what I'm saying <laughs> well, we'll that's what, that was my what first thought like is this the mafia yeah. or right, right, like, right, what? Right. what I think is so interesting too <laughs> that even reading about it though it they're investing in these cameras. More businesses are buying them, but that doesn't necessarily mean there are more officers to respond. Right. So the more you spread it out, even if you have, and when well, I was reading it, they said that even in some of the contracts that these businesses are signing, it says we still may not come. That's right. Because there are, we have expanded, like there's an exponential. It was mm-hmm. an unintended consequence, mm-hmm. right? Their network is so large now, they're having capacity issues, but that also, um, has negative consequences for the community and I don't think people realize that either because they came back and asked for four million dollars to expand the capacity of the real time crime Mm -hmm. center Mm -hmm. right it Mm -hmm. still won't be sufficient enough um, to monitor the cameras effectively but that's four million more dollars that's not going into communities to address mental health substance abuse Mm -hmm. lack of transportation ineffective education, lack of job training skills, right? Some of the things Housing, that really help food, water, mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. all of those the, the basic needs, yeah. right? Of people who are going to end up coming into contact with the criminal legal system. Mm-hmm. And it's a reason I think that that lack of capacity is also just another reason for them to decide to hire more police, right? And that is not a solution either to say That's like right. okay, uh, we need more police officers. It's and it's actually what you're saying. It's mm-hmm. like no, we need to instead of spending more money on expanding the department in any way. It's like we need to spend the money on expanding our communities mm-hmm. in the ways we need, um, and making sure folks have what they need. It's yeah. It's it's wild when you step back and you say, okay, we're we're creating this unasked for, <laughs> implementing this unasked for project that has effectively not worked. And we want more money to expand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny you say that. And I'm sure you probably saw the same thing. When you went to BOPC meetings, mm-hmm. nobody was asking for facial recognition technology. There was not one person who stood up and said, I want this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And more and more folks actually started coming to those meetings to say they did not want it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Like That's after right. the organizing started, um, there, there were more and more folks coming to those meetings to, to talk against it than right. there were folks right. to 
say that they were for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember, and so this was not a meeting I was at, but I just remember the um, meeting where they voted. I think it was when they voted on the that expansion. Was one. Yeah. And they like didn't allow public comment. Right. Wow. <laughs> you know That's what I mean? Because right. it, wow. so it got to a point where so many folks were coming to those meetings to mm-hmm. say that they did not mess with it, that they did not right. want it, yep. that they and didn't they allow it. they had initially that. said, the board chair said that she would provide an opportunity for people to comment before they took the final vote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She said that and they got into the meeting and someone made a motion um, to change the agenda to prevent that public comment from happening. And then um, I believe it was Willie Bell read a statement that I'm sure was prepared mm-hmm. with the assistance of DPD. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I knew that, you know, the community mm-hmm. was screwed. Mm-hmm. Um, moving forward, let's, I would like to shift a little bit to something that Eric had talked about. Uh, when you say, I think it's interesting um, having both of you, um, when you say abolition, when you, you think about that and you're saying that's such a radical idea, that is something that if someone is not used to even having a conversation about eliminating a police force, mm-hmm. it's something that we are, it's so intrinsically part of our, like the fabric of what we believe our society to be. When we start talking about eliminating that, speaking from like a very like specific radical community activist space and a policy space, maybe like you were saying, you're not an abolitionist. What are some of those steps to one, helping people, like you're saying the conversations, but if you want to expand on that, but Mm -hmm. what does it look like moving forward to create these avenues to set, to to helping people, one, feel like that's not the craziest thing they've ever heard <laughs> and mm-hmm. to feel safe in continuing to do, to engage with and be participate in that kind of work to feel like their voice is relevant. Because that's another thing I feel like you find a lot. And maybe this is a, from a policy standpoint is when people are like, I can go yell outside. I can go say what I want to say, but is anything effective? Mm-hmm. Is there something that is being voted? Is there mm-hmm. something that I'm seeing that, that those people, when you say like lawmakers or those who are, we have deemed, ruling what are they doing that is actually that my voice is affecting mm-hmm. and I, I feel like the ACLU does do a lot of pushing to be like no this is going to be on paper you will sign this this yeah. is what's going to happen I was actually going to actually I had a similar question it's, I, I, maybe it's a rewording of it but I was okay. going to try to make a connection between what PG had mentioned around having those community conversations with BYP 100 and prompting people to ask what makes them feel safe mm-hmm. and the work that uh Rod has been doing with the, and the ACLU has been doing in city in the offices of the city council around policy. Is there the opportunity in that conversation to introduce um, introduce more uh, radical thinking? Mm-hmm. You know, when you're talking with you know Mary Sheffield's office, uh, for example, Rod, is is there an opportunity to go further than you know just um, I don't know what the typical conversation would look like, but it would be so reformist conversation. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So reformist conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, uh, so I, I, you know, I can't answer it fully. I'll let Rod jump in too. But mm-hmm. um, Critical Resistance is an organization who um, I learned and study abolition from. And they define it as both a long-term vision and strategy and also a daily practice. So it's like, yes, abolition is the goal. It's where we want to be. And it's also like we have to make the choice every day to be abolitionists. We have to make the choice every day to decide that the safety of the people we love and the people we care about and the people we don't know Mm -hmm, (laughs) and mm -hmm. the people who have harmed us and the people who do wrong things are more important and our priority over um, criminalization, state violence, incarceration, deportation, right? Like all of that stuff. Um, And that looks like 
Uh, so another, <laughs> so there's another one of those conversation starters when we start talking about abolition is what do you call the police for? Yeah. You know, mm. like, and so if I can decide in my daily life to not call the police for something and instead have someone else I could call, so that gets harder when you don't have that, when you don't have the resources of someone else to call, right? You have to dial 911. But what do you call the police for? You know, like, and then folks, we did a workshop for the semester in Detroit program at Cass Commons um, earlier this year, I guess, yeah. <laughs> Time is so weird. I think it was earlier this year. Um, and, you know, and folks are answering like, well, I've called the police or I've had the police call to me for like noise, right? Like noise violations and stuff like that. And so it's just like little, when we get down to the very, very little things, the little practices, what are the, the tiny things we could shift over time? Yep. Like don't call the police when your neighbor's being too loud. Go knock on the door. Mm -hmm. Tell them you have work in the morning and that you would appreciate them being a little quieter. Yeah. Um, and then if they aren't, then it's like, okay, what is the next, what's the next level of that conversation I need to have with them? What's the next level of accountability I need to have with them? Rather than bringing in the state who is going to, you know, criminalize and enact violence. The other thing is, um, I think that to start having these conversations, it's really hard to, to think about these conversations without already having resources in place to replace mm -hmm. the, yeah. mm -hmm. the things that mm -hmm. they provide. Mm -hmm. Because, mm -hmm. yes, it is ingrained in our society in such a way that to think about the world without the police tomorrow, like if, if everything was disbanded tomorrow, like all hell would break loose. Like mm -hmm. there's just no, there wouldn't, it would be the purge. You know what I mean? It like, mm -hmm. and we know that because right now there aren't resources to support the folks who have, are being whatever supported quote, I'm using quote hands mm -hmm. <laughs> supported or whatever by the police right now. Um, the other thing I like to push folks to think about is that slavery was also something that was ingrained in our society for a very long time, for right. hundreds of years. Yeah. Um, it was it was unthinkable to imagine America without slavery. You know, like literally, it was like people couldn't fathom it. Um, and when when abolitionists started talking about abolishing slavery, they were seen as crazy, like radical folks who just you know, like what? No, there's no way. Um, and so just to think about the work, the hundreds of years it took to end that system um, and the work it took for, for folks who are abolitionists to have to convince and, and persuade folks that it is actually worth it to consider something else um, and to see people's humanity. That's what as, as at the root of all of this is like, can we see each other's humanity and not see each other as worthy of violence against them, worthy of um, inhumane practices, worthy of isolation? Um, and deprivation, right? Like, can we actually see folks' humanity and mm -hmm. their ability to be transformed and mm -hmm. their ability to be restored? And right now, maybe not. <laughs> you know, that's just well, the real answer. Like, maybe not right now. I mean, I think it's but, interesting that I, I go back further when you talk about, like, yeah, slavery was something that was so ingrained. And unfortunately, those narratives are still ingrained, yeah. right? That, that, and that's, mm -hmm. that's when I think about when I engage with the idea of abolition and, and its efficacy, just like anything else. It's like, these are the things that I want to hear other people talk about because even something as insidious and terrible as the history of enslavement of people in this country is something that is unaddressed and pushed back and swept under the rug and so when we talk about what we're doing now how do we roll that which has been our historical or a historical masking of the truth into the work that we're doing right now mm -hmm. because yeah sorry i wouldn't have gone into that but i think that bringing up slavery is something that's so important because i i push back when people are saying it's so much better. I always get that, you know, it's so much better than it was. And I'm like, because I'm not enslaved, that's not necessarily a bar you want to set for <laughs> an efficacy right. of the work we're doing. Right. Yeah. It's not as bad as it could be. All right. <laughs> Roger, do you right. want to chime in on that? Uh, in so many different ways. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. We don't have enough time. Right. Um, 
Um, because slavery, more than anything else, um, enshrined white supremacy in our culture. And Absolutely. there are all sorts of horrible ramifications of that that will reverberate into my, you know, children's, children's, children's children, children, right? Our mm-hmm. old people. Um, and then... I would have been for abolition at the slave patrol level mm-hmm. so that they never evolved, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I would have also been for reparations at the emancipata- emancipation stage, mm-hmm. right, when people would have really benefited from it. But um, I'll get off my um, black nationalist soapbox. No. <laughs> Why is Mine is glued to my feet. I, I don't know how to get off of it. Because I want to answer your question. So the ACLU has this initiative we call Community Control Over Police Surveillance, um, CCOPS, um, which does what you were suggesting. It, it gives people an opportunity to have a say in how surveillance is used in their communities if they, in fact, choose to allow their tax dollars to buy it. Um, so... Um, CCOPS is an initiative that we um, use to work with people in communities who are interested in working with their city councils or county commissions to get policies introduced and implemented. Uh, we have model policy that we suggest they uh, push for in whole or in part. And we've been um, able to help folks in communities across the country get these um, passed. Actually, I think there are 30-something communities now that have them. Um, in some form or fashion, and that is continuing to grow um, as people become more aware of the dangers um, to privacy rights that surveillance um, networks pose. Um, we are working um, with um, Council Pro Tem Mary Sheffield on, on an ordinance um, called Community Input Over Government Surveillance that aims to do that here in the city of Detroit. Um, that policy now is in committee. Um, it's been discussed twice now. Um, we expect there to be further discussion um, after the Christmas break in January. Um, but we have been um, pleased with the progress of it. Um, the point person on it is actually one of my colleagues at the ACLU National um, Headquarters, a guy named Chad Marlowe, who's been active in these sorts of policy efforts in states across the country. He's got incredible policy expertise. So he actually helped craft um, this particular policy um, in collaboration with um, Pro Tem Sheffield, um, the city law department, and officials from DPD. DPD came out and you know aired their concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, we've tweaked the policy to address those concerns. So now the latest version actually has DPD's buy-in. Okay. Um, and it's you know not uh, everyday thing to have both the support of the ACLU and support <laughs> of law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you get to that stage, that rec- I think that represents a pretty significant win. So we we really want to try to get this thing passed. That would make Detroit you know a model. Mom, I have a question, Rod, about that about that policy. So so the policy itself is designed to have to allow community input around how. The technology is is used in a specific community. So it starts at acquisition, and that's where you have an opportunity to say, as a community, no, we don't want our tax dollars spent on that in the first place. Okay, okay. Let's put that money into the community in ways that really help improve people's lives All right. and address the issues that make them feel unsafe in the first place. All right. So it it, it starts there. Um, we 
already have facial recognition and green light, but this would provide an opportunity to say, we don't want it anymore. Mm -hmm. We don't want to continue to invest in it. Okay. Um, It also includes reporting requirements um, so that folks in the community have um, a regular opportunity to hear what's being done um, with that surveillance equipment and what the results are, uh, which helps to further inform their decisions going forward mm-hmm. um, and helps the public education work you know mm-hmm. that you all have been doing because mm-hmm. you have the data to then say well we have spent all this money on this technology and I don't think we should spend another dime mm-hmm. yeah participatory budgeting is um, a model that we've looked at as an organization mm-hmm. from and have seen models work across the country right. Um in Durham, so BYP 100 has a chapter in Durham, and they're part of this coalition, Durham Beyond Policing, and they actually were able to uh, successfully do participatory budgeting around their police budget, and mm-hmm. like, um, and I mean, what came out of it was like, I think actually one of the things that the city, like residents voted for was cameras at this public housing uh, <laughs> complex, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it's just. You can't win them all, you know. It's like you get you give the community the folks to. I mean, the the you give the community the opportunity to make a choice, and then they make a choice, and you have to just you know honor that choice, and then continue mm-hmm. doing the education to talk about like right. why that's not maybe necessarily getting them what they really want. But you know, I think that it is a model that we've seen work, and so I really appreciate that. That's something that is you know brewing here. Mm-hmm. That's that makes me feel a little more hopeful. Yeah, we have to help uh, get this over the finish line so that you know we have what we think is good policy now mm-hmm. actually implement it before it gets watered down because mm-hmm. of negative pushback because um, we don't want bad policy either mm-hmm. um, thank you both as we start coming to it and I want to I really appreciate both of you the work that you're doing and the I mean the the hope that I hear in both of you and that and the levity that one can bring with reason to having these conversations because it can feel like you said PG very hopeless and mm-hmm. you hear that so much um, and it's great having people sit down and hopefully through a medium like podcasting you can just get people to hear people having these real conversations mm-hmm. and being like this is it's not you in your head you're not alone you're not just feeling like this is something crazy that you're the only one feeling a little nervous about um but as we wrap up is there is there a way that we can tell people to engage with either of the work that you're doing give them the opportunity to support or participate or find an avenue through um a a current situation that they can you know um be be involved in yeah i would say show your support for council pro tem sheffield's um CIOG's ordinance you know contact her office and offer to come speak the next time it's her to show your support and you know it's always helpful to bring a friend mm-hmm. um you know two voices are better than one but i think um, getting this passed and generating some attention around it it's going to do a lot for increasing public awareness so we have more people fighting against continued expansion of the surveillance network here in the city awesome um, yeah, I mean, I, I always love more and more folks to be a part of like visionary, radical organizing work, movement building work, liberatory work. Um, and I think one of the the starting place 
that I would offer is through study and reflection. So uh, I mentioned critical resistance earlier. They have a lot of resources on what abolition looks like in theory and in practice. Um, I think reflection, deep reflection about some of the questions that I offered earlier, you know, like what makes you feel safe? What does your community need to feel safe? Um, what what do you call the police for? Who else could you call instead? Um, and st- starting there. And then when you're ready to come throw down with some folks who are, <laughs> you know, hey. um, who are about that life and really trying to change our Con- like our condi- our conditions in our world, then come throw down with BYP 100 and the Greenlight Black Futures campaign. Um, and the way you can do that is uh, you can follow us on Instagram and on Facebook um, and just stay in touch with like the next time we have an event. Uh, you can email us if you want to start coming to our meetings and to like share your voice there. Um, and, you know, in 2020, we we have plans to be much more visible. Like, I think we've, we've been visible in a lot of small ways over the last year and a half. And so 2020 is really about how can we make sure everyone across the city knows about this campaign? Everybody knows about Blackout Greenlight. Like, folks know what's going on. And so you'll see us more. And we just, like, love for y'all to just yeah. come Join us, <laughs> you even, know. Even the Michigan Chronicle had y'all splashed on the front page yeah. a couple months ago. I was like, yeah. okay, Michigan Chronicle. Okay. <laughs> All right, that was the um, Eli. Eli Day wrote that article, yep. right? Yeah. Yep. Um, when, for our action, so yeah, it's it's a lot of a lot of work that we're trying to hold, and we know it's like big vision stuff, and it's hard for people who are more action oriented who are like no we need to do something right now right to feel like this work is fulfilling but I think that that's why I'm like I'm offering start off with some study and some reflection I'm uh, the Bog Center is a good place to come for that type of study for a community conversation and things like that but like start there join us let's get lit you know All right. Hey, <laughs> All right. yeah that sounds great so let's get free <laughs> let's get free yeah so we're gonna start to wrap it up um, I want to say um Thank you, Rod. Thank you, PG, for joining us for this uh, this critical conversation. Um, I, I foresee a day very soon when we have like you know the phone lines and the and the Skype and you know, we'll, we'll get we'll get people callers callers. Yeah, people call yeah, I don't know. No, wow, because I mean yeah. this should be this should be avenue for folks to you know share their stories and, and, and it will be. We're gonna be mm-hmm. doing stuff you know on the street uh, recordings and interviews. Um, but we're starting you know we're starting with this interview format in studio and um, this is also an opportunity to get some of your expertise out to folks and get people talking about these issues. Um, so thank you so much for joining us and helping us get it started. Rod Montz from the ACLU, PG from BYP 100. You guys are both doing amazing work and um, we hope people are listening. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. 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 I appreciate the work that you're doing as well. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. no, this is major and I'm um, really excited to be a part of it and to generate these types of conversations in our Man, community. Thanks that was for fantastic. That was yeah. good. Yeah. Thank uh, you guys so much. I'm so uh, inspired and happy to be a part of this project and, and to be a part of those conversations. I really want to thank you for inviting me and thank Riverwise uh, for including me as a, pro- uh, a member of this project. And I cannot wait to continue this work and to continue these conversations and w- with all the amazing guests we, we hope to have in the future. So yeah, we're looking forward to doing many more and uh, Amas, thank you um, for helping us get this thing started. This is something we've been talking about for a while. Um, and we think it's going to be uh, just a uh, just a, a continuation, um, a growth of, of the Riverwise uh, community and um, the issues that we these vital issues that we want to cover. Um, I want to acknowledge the team 
Uh, first of all, beside yourself, Omas, um, L'Oreal West, we, I have to mention, she was a big part of keeping us organized as we got this thing together. Uh, Dean Garcia, thank you very much. Our dealer, Dean, hey. was a big part of the conversations um, leading up to this first podcast. Heidi Osgood, who you heard at the top, uh, it's not only lent her beautiful voice, but she's lent uh, years of experience in helping us get this together. Kari Frazier at Detroit is Different. Thank you so much, Kari, for offering not only your expertise in putting together a podcast, but also the resources and tools that you have at, at your disposal. Um, I also want to mention Reverend Joan Ross at the North End Woodward Community Coalition, who uh, in conversations with myself at WNUC was very encouraging of us putting together a podcast uh, to... Um, to go along with the articles we've been putting out in the magazine. Uh, she was very insistent that uh, these vital issues we're covering needed to be talked about as well as written about. So thank you, Reverend Joan Ross. Um, Amas, I'm gonna take a minute just to provide a little bit of context, a little bit of background real quick um, as, to, as to how we got to the podcast. Um, if folks don't know, Riverwise Magazine is a quarterly community magazine that was started at the James and Grace Lee Boggs Center. Uh, in 2016 is when we actually began conversations around whether we needed a um, another media outlet with, with, with which to cover these vital issues that are taking place around Detroit. Um, as Detroit goes through this um, transformation, um, there are places in neighborhoods that are responding to you know the recent devastation uh, that we've been going through in this, what some people are calling a post-industrial era. Um, People are responding by doing um, a new form of, of movement work, uh, which some people call visionary organizing. Um, so our work is inspired by the folks that are doing that work and some of the work that's been coming out of the James and Grace Lee Bog Center as well. Um, people all over the city are going beyond questioning the institutions that are supposed to be helping us thrive economically and politically. And they're, they're moving on to building new institutions at the grassroots level. So we're looking at these self-reliant communities and we're being inspired by them um, as we look towards a new, uh, a new society is really what we're talking about. This, this magazine is really about the, a future that we want to see. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure uh, and, a, and our responsibility to make sure that these, um, these stories are as accessible as possible. So the podcast helps us have these conversations. Um, it helps people get involved in these conversations. Um, folks who might not be so inclined to write necessarily, although we've been encouraging them through the Riverwise writing workshops. But uh, this will be another uh, resource that people have to uh, tell their stories. And that's kind of the other... Uh, the other track that Riverwise started on is the fact that we need to be telling our own stories um, if we're concerned about correcting or establishing a new narrative about what's going on in the city of Detroit. We need to have folks who are doing this work um, be able to talk about it and be able to sh be able to share their experiences. So this podcast will be uh, will be an inroad to more conversations and being being able to expand on some of the issues that we've prevented in, pre presented in the magazine. And uh, we look forward to uh, to many, many more. This was the first. It felt it felt good, and um, we've got a lot of folks on which uh, we can rely on for their expertise and their experiences. And we hope, uh, yeah, we hope this is a, the first of a, a many, many, many podcasts. Thanks for sticking it out with us. Um, we'll be back next time. And in the meantime, hold fast, stay current. <laughs> See ya. <laughs>